Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. We are continuing our journey through this wonderful book about God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. That's page 68 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow along there. Last week, we began looking at the instructions God gave to Moses for the construction of the tabernacle, which is a a mobile sanctuary, a dwelling place for God among his people. And and Nate walked us through the the structure of the tabernacle, some of the furniture that, that is there within it. And this week, as we come to chapters 28 to 30, the focus is on the people who minister in the tabernacle, so the, the priests. And we don't have time to read all three chapters this morning. I'm going to read uh, three selections from these chapters that kind of give you the, the feel for what's going on here. They're, they're printed in your bulletin if you want to follow along there, or I'll... I'll announce each section as I come to it. So we're going to begin with Exodus chapter 28, verses 1 to 5. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. He says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine-twined linen. Now, uh, Exodus 29, verses 1 to 9. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour, You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And then if you jump down to verse 35 of chapter 29, after giving some more details about this consecration ceremony, the Lord says, Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day regularly, 
One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Let's bow our heads together and ask for the Lord's help as we come to his word. Our God and Father, this is your holy, inerrant, inspired word. And we are your people here this morning gathered before it. We ask that you would... Give us eyes to see and ears to hear wonderful things from your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll be honest with you. When I read through the Bible, I tend to skip over sections like the ones I've just read for you. And the, and the material that, that Nate covered last week, um, I tend to just move through them very quickly, and I'm sure many of you do too. There's only so much um, that I can handle about clasps and curtains and, and garments. You know, it all seems so remote, and maybe you felt that as, as I read these selections from the chapters. Um, maybe even feels quite a bit um, irrelevant to our day. After all, we are not uh, the, the people of Israel wandering through a, a wilderness land. And, and in need of a, a tent in which God dwells. Um, if you do try to read through these chapters, it's very easy to miss the forest for the trees. The, the level of detail there is, is really something, in it, and it's very easy to just lose sight of what this is all about. And Moses, very helpfully, at the end of chapter 29, it's almost as if he, he steps back for a moment and he, and he kind of provides a summary of what's going on here, a, a big picture perspective on the tabernacle and the, and the priesthood and all these details. He, he puts all the details about the priests and the vestments and the, and the consecration ceremonies in context. And so here's what I want to do with you this morning as we look at these three chapters. I want to consider three points with you. The first is the promise of God's presence. The second, the gift of the priesthood. And then third and finally, Jesus, our great high priest. Uh, remember, the, the Bible is a unified story leading to Jesus Christ. And as we better understand what's going on here in, in Exodus, we'll come to better understand our Savior. And so first, let's look at the promise of God's presence, the promise of God's presence. So beginning last week and then continuing today, we have all this detail about this tent in the wilderness and, and all that goes on in it. And here this week, the, the priesthood and, and all that's associated with it. And why? You know, why this tent? Why the priesthood? We're given an answer there at the end of chapter 29. If you, if you turn over to chapter 29 again, looking at, at verse 
42 through the end, we, we see that the tabernacle, its furniture, the, the people who serve in it are all about God's intention to dwell among his people. Uh, the Lord says there in verse 42, I will meet with you to speak with you there. Verse 43, I will meet with the people of Israel. Uh, verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. That wonderful covenant uh, statement of God's intention to enter into this relationship with his people and to dwell among them and be their God. And he goes on to say, even in verse 46, this was the whole reason for the Exodus. All that we've been seeing here in the book so far was for this purpose, that God might rescue them from slavery to bring them to himself so that they might know him and so that he might dwell among them. You see, the Lord wants to share a home with his people. And and this isn't anything new as we come to Exodus 28. This isn't something that just came up out of the blue. This has always been God's intention. From, from the very beginning, God's purpose, God's plan involved building a home in which to dwell with his human creatures and to enjoy a, a relationship of mutual love and, and delight. You see that even in the opening pages of the Bible there in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, uh, God creates the heavens and the earth and then he builds a garden. The Garden of Eden, which was a, a sanctuary for his presence, a garden temple. He puts a man and a woman there to experience his presence, to enjoy the, the abundance of his goodness and, and relationship with him. And as Nate pointed out last week, human beings, you and I, we were created for communion with God. That is why we exist. We were created in God's image for friendship with him. But you know the story there in the in the opening chapters of Genesis. Adam and Eve, they they sin, they rebel against God, they become unholy people, sinful people. And and the holy God cannot dwell among sinful, unholy people. And so Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, they're barred from God's dwelling place. And that really has been the, the human story ever since. On this side of Genesis 3, because of our sin, we are exiles from God's holy and life-giving presence. And this is the great dilemma of human existence as, as God's image bearers, those created for friendship with God. We cannot truly live. We cannot truly live meaningful, satisfying, purposeful lives the way God intended our lives to be apart from a relationship of of loving communion with him in his presence. But because of his holiness and our unholiness, we can't dwell with him. And even if you're not a Christian here today, I suspect you've, you've felt something of this tension you know, maybe you don't have words for it. You wouldn't know exactly how to explain it. But, but deep down within you, there is this restlessness, this um, unsettled feeling, a nagging sense that, that something is just missing. And, and maybe you've tried to find it, you know, perhaps in relationships or, or maybe in a career. But at the end of the day, you still find yourself empty and incomplete. And that, my friends, is an inkling 
of exile from God, of being cut off from the God for whom we were created. You see, no created thing in itself can, can satisfy that need we have as human beings to dwell in God's presence. And so here's the tension. On the one hand, God's intention to dwell with us, to, to make a home with his human creatures, and on the other, our unfitness for his presence because of our sin. And, and, the, and the whole Bible is about this dilemma. How can it be resolved? And God's answer is a mediator, a go-between, someone who can represent us in God's presence, someone who can bridge that, that gap between a holy God and unholy human beings. And that's what the priests are here in Exodus 28 to 30. They're, they're mediators. They are holy representatives of God's people in God's holy presence. And so let's consider next the, the gift of the priesthood. God desires to dwell among his people. He promises his presence, and then he provides this priesthood to, to begin unfolding that plan. And there's a lot in chapters 28 to 30. Um, let me just give you a quick overview. Chapter 28, God establishes the office of the priesthood, appoints uh, Aaron and his sons to serve there, and then we get instructions about the garments, the uniform, the high priest must wear while serving in the tabernacle. Chapter 29, a consecration ceremony for Aaron and his sons, the other priests, as they're set apart for their special service. And then chapter 30 deals with various functions of the priesthood. Now, chapter 28 is mostly given over to a description of the, the priestly wardrobe. And it's interesting in its own right, at least from a sartorial perspective. I mean, the, the high priest of Israel is the best-dressed man in Israel. And you can see there, if you look at chapter 28, verse 4, uh, the, the six parts of his priestly uniform are listed. Um, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. And you can look in your order of worship. There's a, an artist's rendition of the garments. Um, but these garments, um, they're more than fashion items. They, they communicate something about the high priest's role. The, the high priest represents God to the people. His clothing itself even reflects characteristics of God. Look at chapter 28, verse 2. The Lord says, You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. The, the three words used there to describe the garments, holy, um, glory, and beauty, those are all terms used for God himself elsewhere in Scripture. And the priest's very garments give the people glimpses of, of God's own beauty and, and radiant holiness. Uh, the garments are made from the same materials as the tabernacle, God's dwelling place. Uh, both the ephod, chapter 28, verse 6, and the breastpiece, uh, described in, in verse 15, are, are made from blue and purple and scarlet yarns, uh, made from fine-twined linen, the, the same as the tabernacle. And the colors here, you can see it in the picture, they're, they're vibrant, they're beautiful. There's something to look at, but, but they also evoke the royal splendor of the king who resides there in this royal tent. Then if you look down at, at verse 33 in chapter 28, we get a description of the hem of the robe that the high priest must wear. And we, and we read, 
On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. And so you have this, even on the, the hem of the robe, you have pomegranates. It seems strange to us. It's, it's garden imagery. It's, it's an echo of Eden. Just like the curtains in the temple had images of the cherubim woven into them um, it, with Eden imagery. So here the priest's robes are, are rich with, with symbolic reminders of God's first dwelling place on earth. This, this holy servant, the high priest of Israel, is a sign of God's presence with his people. Now, why the bells? <laughs> you read this description of the hem with, with in, um, alternating pomegranates and, and golden bells. And we read in verse 35 that the sound of the bells will keep Aaron from being put to death when he appears before the Lord in the most holy place. And there's many different ideas about their function. I, th- I think the most likely is that they're a signal to the, to the Lord that the high priest, not, not an unauthorized person, not some other individual, but the high priest was coming into God's presence. It's just sort of like a doorbell, right? Um, except in the case of maybe close family and close friends, you don't just show up at somebody's house and, and come and barge right in, right? You announce your arrival by knocking on the door or, or ringing the bell. And, of course, God doesn't need the sound of a bell to know who's coming. Um, in a sense, this is a reminder for the people, a reminder that, that sinners can only come to God through a mediator, through the one God appoints. And so the, the high priest's garments here, they, they mark him out as a, a living, breathing, walking, talking reflection of the God who, who resides here in the tabernacle. But the priest not only represents God to the people, he represents the people to God. And, and again, looking at chapter 28, in verses 6 to 14, we, we get a description of the ephod worn on the, the priest's chest. It's, a, it's sort of like a sleeveless vest, probably extending down below the hips like an apron. And, and we're told it's fastened to the priest's body by two shoulder pieces. And then onyx stones are placed in each of the, the shoulder pieces with the names of six of Israel's tribes engraved on each one, representing all of Israel, all 12 tribes, all the people of God. And, and look at verse 12 there. He calls these stones of remembrance. And we read that Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. This this. The garment itself symbolizes Aaron's role as a representative of the people. He, he comes into the presence of God bearing the weight of Israel's concerns and cares and burdens on his shoulders, so to speak. He appears in God's presence on their behalf and for their sake. Similarly, the, the breast piece, which is described in verses 15 to 30, it's this uh, square pouch worn on top of the ephod, resting over the priest's heart. Within the pouch are the, the Urim and the Thummim, items used for discerning God's will. We don't know a whole lot about them. And this, this pouch is overlaid with precious stones, uh, arranged in four rows of three stones each. You can see that there in verse 17. And, and each stone is engraved with the name of one 
of the tribes of Israel. And so these, these stones on the high priest's chest with, with the names of God's people on them, they, they communicate the high value God puts on his people. And if you jump down to verse 29, we read this about the purpose of bearing the names of, of the Israelites before God. We read that Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment or decision on his heart. And when he goes into the holy place, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. What a picture here of the priest. When he comes into God's presence, um, he comes with the people on his heart. He comes bearing their burdens. And and in a sense, he, he brings them with him as their representative. And then... Finally, you, you, we read about the turban in verses 36 to 38. Um, a gold plaque or crown is fixed to the front, and it's engraved with the words, Holy to the Lord. And it emphasizes Aaron's holy status, this, this unique status that the Lord has granted to him as the people's representative. The, the people themselves cannot enter the holy place because of their unholiness, but, but this one man, this representative is granted a holy status on behalf of the rest. Now, we, we don't have time to go into all the details about the other items, the, the other um, parts of the priest's uniform, but I want you to think back for a moment again to Eden. When after Adam and Eve sinned, what did they realize? They realized that they're not clothed, and it became a, a source of shame, a source of um, shame before God, a, a reminder that they had become polluted and unholy by their sin, that they were now unfit for God's presence. And you remember, they, they tried to rectify the problem, right? They tried to cobble together clothes of their own from fig leaves, but to no avail. Uh, their self-made garments couldn't remove their shame and guilt, couldn't hide their shame from God. And then God graciously gives them what? clothes, the the skins, the pelts of sacrificial animals. Well, here we have God clothing the priest with holy garments so that he can stand in God's presence without shame. This is really an amazing moment in redemptive history, humanity's exile from God's presence, that that exile that began back in Eden, it's being undone. Israel's high priest, the, the people's mediator and representative, is leading them back into God's dwelling place. We, we see a human being once again being granted access to God's presence. That's, that's what all this represents. The priest represents God to the people and, more importantly, in a sense, represents the people to God. But there's a problem. And maybe you noticed this as I read some of the selections earlier, or if you're familiar with these chapters, there is a problem. It's not a flaw in the sense that God failed to account for something, but rather a a divinely designed shortcoming, something he baked right into the Old Covenant priesthood. And it's this, Israel's high priest, initially Aaron, later his sons, Israel's high priest wasn't holy. 
Yes, he was given a holy status, a symbolic status. He was clothed with special clothes symbolizing that status. But but in and himself, he was a sinner. And, And that's why we have this consecration ceremony in chapter 29 where the priests are washed with water. They're sprinkled with the blood of a sacrifice symbolizing their own need to be cleansed from their sin. Um, over in chapter 29, there, there are three sacrifices offered during this ceremony. They're described in, in chapter 29, verses 10 to 34. And, and that first sacrifice there, beginning in verse 10, it's a sin offering. And, and Aaron, the high priest, and the, and the other priests, they put their hands on the head of the sacrificial animal, symbolizing the transfer of their guilt to a substitute. Um, and then the animal's blood is shed. And so even Israel's high priest needed to atonement for sin. And, and that was a problem for Israel. Leviticus 4.3 tells us that, that the high priest, as the people's representative, his sin is counted against the people. And so Israel needed a better priest. And then even the, the sacrifices that he offered... They couldn't actually take away the people's guilt. Towards the end of chapter 29, verses 38 to 42, uh, we we read about the institution of the twice-daily sacrifices that need to be offered day after day after day, not just for the ceremony, the seven-day ceremony, but, but in perpetuity. And on the one hand, we see that that God's eager to deal with his people's sin and guilt. He provides this mechanism through sacrifice to atone for the people's sin. But on the other hand, the never-ending sacrifices indicate that the blood of animals, bulls, goats, lambs, cannot truly deal with our guilt. Israel needed a better sacrifice. So this whole system here, it it was never an end in itself. It it was by design, temporary. Um, By design, it it created a longing in the people's hearts for the coming of a better priest, for the coming of one who would offer a better sacrifice. And, And the good news is that the wait is over. See, it wasn't just Israel who needed a better priest offering a better sacrifice. You and I need a priest who can offer a once-for-all sacrifice. And that priest has come. So third this morning, let's consider Jesus, our great high priest. You see, unlike Aaron, unlike Eli and, and, and other priests in Israel's history, Jesus is the perfectly sinless High priest, the one who is without sin, Hebrews 4 tells us, the one who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, Hebrews 7. And this spotless priest, this righteous priest, offered not the blood of bulls and goats for the sins of the people, but his own self. His one, he offered himself as the once for all sacrifice for our sins. And in Hebrews 10, commenting on, on all of this, says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Well, why sit? 
Well, it goes on to say, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ sat down because his atoning work was finished. Aaron never sat down in the most holy place. He would go in, do his work, and he would exit and then come back again the following year. His work was never complete, but Jesus could say on the cross, it is finished. I have done what you, Father, gave me to do. And so Jesus' death on the cross and, and his ongoing priestly ministry in heaven. That that is what Jesus is doing today. He is a minister in the heavenly sanctuary. That is the reality to which the tabernacle, to which the, the priesthood all pointed. And friends, if you belong to Christ by faith, if you are one who has turned to him in faith, you have a great high priest representing you in God's presence. And what does that mean for us? Let me give you three things that means for us. And the the first is this, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven, not symbolically forgiven, not potentially forgiven, or even partially forgiven. Your sins are actually forgiven. Christ has forever taken away the guilt and shame of your sin. You see, the the Christian life, it's not some frantic quest to try to do enough to convince God to, to show us just a, a drop of mercy or, or to somehow persuade him, you know, um, the things I've done really aren't that bad. Can you just overlook them? A perfect sacrifice has been offered. God's justice has been satisfied. And there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. We, we live out of this wonderful reality that our sin has been taken away. And in Christ, if you're in Christ, you no longer stand naked and ashamed before God. You're no longer clothed in, the, in, the, in rags stained with your moral filth. You're, you're clothed in the clean white linen of Christ's righteousness. Uh, Nancy Guthrie, an author, points to the cross and she writes, He, Jesus, experienced the humiliation of nakedness so that you and I could experience the glory of being clothed. And we don't always feel forgiven, do we? Um, some of us carry around within us just a, a, a burden of shame for our past, um, a burden of guilt for the ways we continue to fail you know, we're very conscious of our sinful inclinations. Um, when I look inward, I see plenty of reason to despair. But what does the song say? We're going to sing it a little later before the Lord's Supper. What does it say? When, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. So, so friends, I mean, you look inward, you're going to despair. Look up. Look up and, and see your high priest, your perfect, spotless high priest, ministering for you in the heavenly sanctuary with the eyes of faith. Gaze on him. And in him you are forgiven. In him you are secure. Christ would have to be evicted from his place at God's right hand for there to be any question about your forgiveness. So 
you are forgiven, but Christ's high priesthood also means that Jesus gets you. Jesus gets you. You know, in the scripture reading earlier from Hebrews 5, we're, we're told a little bit about the old covenant high priests. They, they could relate to the people they represented. They were chosen from among the people, and therefore they could sympathize with them. They, they could deal gently, Hebrews 5 says, with the weak and the weary and the sinful and the ignorant because they themselves participated in the human condition. You know, having a, a friend who gets you or a spouse or a loved one who gets you is such a tremendous gift, isn't it? You know, someone who's comfortable with you just the way that you are. <laughs> you, the real you, the you without the mask, uh, you with all your quirks and, and shortcomings. Someone who gets what makes you tick and, and doesn't judge you for your fears and your struggles, doesn't avoid you like you're just some kind of weirdo who needs to be banished. Jesus' role as high priest means he gets you. He's a human being like us. And yes, without sin, and not merely a man, nevertheless, really and truly a human being, one with us in our humanity. And you have a mediator in God's presence this morning who knows what it's like to be you. He experienced the kinds of things that you've experienced, both the, the happy things and even the, the sad things. He's faced the kinds of struggles you do. Maybe not exactly the same uh, exact temptation. There was no internet in Jesus' day. But he's faced every kind of struggle that his people face. He's not disgusted by your weaknesses. He himself was subject to human weakness and limitation. He doesn't mock your fears. Uh, he, he understands. He empathizes, Hebrews 4 tells us. And if the old covenant priest could deal gently with the people, Jesus does more so. Jesus does more so. This high priest in heaven at God's right hand his heart is moved with tender compassion over your sin and suffering. Jesus isn't up in the heavenly sanctuary right now looking down at you and thinking, why don't they just get their act together? Do I really need to come to their aid again? Jesus is, is moved with compassion. He moves toward you in your brokenness, not away from you. And just like the, the high priest under the Old Covenant um, brought the cares and the worries and the needs on his heart into the presence of God, Jesus is there in the presence of God with you on his heart. Just like the song says, your name is written on his heart. It's impossible for this high priest, it's impossible for Jesus to be indifferent to you. Hebrews says he, he lives, he dwells in the presence of God to intercede for us continually. And so Jesus' high priesthood means your sins are forgiven. It means that Jesus gets you. And then third and finally, it means that you have access to God. Jesus has opened the way back home 
to God for us. The way back to God's dwelling place. That that dilemma that I talked about earlier. uh, God's intention to dwell with his people, but the impossibility of a holy God dwelling with unholy people. It's been resolved in Christ. And, and because of Christ, because of what he's done in his life, death, and resurrection, and because of what he's doing even now in his heavenly intercession, you have greater privileges than even Israel or Israel's high priest had. You know, in one sense, that, that tabernacle, it was a sign of, of God's nearness to his people, his closeness to his people. But, but there was still distance, wasn't there? Uh, we saw last week that the ordinary Israelites, they could only go into the outer courts. That's as far as they could go. No, no further. Not into the, the holy place or the most holy place. Uh, the high priest, on the other hand, he did have access to that, that inner sanctum of, of God's presence where God dwelt above the ark. But, but even he could only go once a year and, and always with a degree of, of trepidation. That warning, if you don't come in the right way, you're going to be put to death. But, but now, friends, because of Christ, because, of, because he's gone before us, we, we have something better. You know, it's not just the chance to, to peek behind the curtain. You know, uh, hurry up, come over here quickly, I'll give you a little glimpse now. Now move along. The, that curtain that separated the, the holy place from the most holy place, that was torn from top to bottom when Christ offered himself on the cross. And that, that barrier keeping us from the holy presence of our God, it's, it's gone. The way is open for us. And, and Hebrews 10, in, in reflecting on this, talks about how Christ entered the, the holy places with his own blood. And by the new and living way, he, he opened for us um, through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And it says, now that we have this great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with Hearts, uh, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us, let us come because of what Christ has done, because of where Christ is. Come. Do you hear the invitation? It's no longer keep your distance. Stay back lest I break out against you in my holy wrath. It's come. The Father welcoming us into His presence as, as sons and daughters. He wants us to come. He, he, he urges us to come and to make ourselves at home in His presence along with our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is the one who has bridged that, that gulf between us and God. He is our mediator in God's presence. Our merciful and faithful high priest who, who, brings, him with, who brings us with him into the life-giving presence of our Creator. So friends, let, let's pray and ask that, that these realities would become realities in our lived experience. Our God and Father, as we look at the Old Testament, we can often be confused. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to put the pieces together. 
and that we would live as men and women who know Jesus Christ as our great high priest, who know the great freedom we have through his shed blood, freedom from condemnation, freedom from shame and guilt. I pray that you would help us to live within the reality of this free and open access to your presence that we have because of our forerunner, Jesus Christ. Oh God, would you shed, a, shed your love in our hearts once again, pour out your love in our hearts once again by the work of your Holy Spirit so that we might live confidently in your presence. We pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.